90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. How about yourself? Oh, can't complain too much. We've had some pretty nice weather, getting lots of fun coding done. I got to delve into the world of potential vorticity this week. Ooh, I miss potential vorticity. I mean, not really, just abstractly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had forgotten, you know, there's there's so many different kinds of potential vorticity, and meteorologists love to have a name for something and then somebody else makes a permutation of it but we still call it the same thing which makes writing all these permutations and code very hard <laughs> ah, it's like the opposite of geology where it gets a totally different unrelated name <laughs> yeah so that's been kind of fun and then you get to look at equations that don't even sound real like quasi-geostrophic potential vorticity i'm sorry i just i just had some ptsd <laughs> from the QG <laughs> equation. I, pr I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Um, man, quasi-geostrophic. I don't hear that much anymore, but I do remember turning my notebook sideways to fit that entire equation onto a page. Right, yeah. It's, uh, well, that it's a beast. Fun. Yeah, that sounds super fun. <laughs> yeah, so I've been, you know, trying to make computers bend to my will all week. That's... <laughs> Isn't that kind of... Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what you do every week, really. It's true, during the day and at night. Uh, a little <laughs> bit more hardware at night, but... <laughs> it better be, since you're working on my hardware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got some videos of your of your sample handler running. Yeah, can't wait. Can't wait to not bitch about the magnetometer being broken. I don't know what I'm going to do with my time. <laughs> <laughs> well, so listener Steve actually sent us a video that... Uh, Gave me some some palpitations at how <laughs> how wonderful a control system on this machine is. Oh my gosh, this video was ridiculous, and it's super short, so it's linked here in the show notes. You should go watch it now, and it is a robot solving a Rubik's cube, which is nothing new. The math behind solving a Rubik's cube and manipulating a Rubik's cube those are all relatively straightforward problems. Yeah, but this is ridiculous. Point six seconds. <laughs> Yeah, so about 52 steps per second, according to Steve's math here. Oh my gosh, that's outrageous. So every two milliseconds, this uses some actuators and rotates. So the, the Rubik's Cube goes from completely randomized to completely solved. Uh, yeah, in maybe half a second or so. Oh, I love that Steve challenged you to build that. Or I'm guessing build it, not challenge you to solve it in quicker time than that. Because that's not going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, but when you have a really well-constrained problem like this, that just shows you how much you can tune uh, the actuators and the control systems we have now to do a beautiful job. That's pretty impressive. Yep. And that's why machines are going to take over the world, but we'll talk about that during the fun paper. Well, you know, that could lead uh, to the conclusion of the sixth mass extinction when machines that's right. uh, take out the humans. That's exactly right. Well, that might be the seventh. It depends on how you're counting. Yeah. <laughs> but but we're not there yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're still like 200 million years ago, right? So we ended last week talking about basically the worst mass extinction that the Earth has ever seen. And so, you know, when I was finishing up reading about these mass extinctions and things, because some of them I know more about than others, 
it was talking about the incompleteness of the fossil record, right? And it says something like maybe at the low end, the fossil record has just recorded like 0.1% of species that have ever lived. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so to think about something like that Permian-Triassic mass extinction that we ended up talking about last week, which killed like 95% of life on Earth. I mean, that's crazy. Just think of all the stuff that didn't even get preserved in the fossil record that was like there and gone in a blink of an eye. And so that's that's where we ended last week was this terrible, terrible thing that killed 95% of life on Earth. Yeah, and so after that 95% <laughs> went away, uh, not a whole terribly long later, so 50 million years later. Right. Uh, it's the land animal's turn. <laughs> That's so right. So this is the famous Triassic-Jurassic <laughs> mass extinction. So a lot of the extinctions that we see in the rock record, we talk a lot about ocean life. I mean, mostly because that's where you're, if you think about in terms of a geologic balance, like where are you depositing rock and where are you eroding rock? And it's usually the land where you're eroding it and the sea where you're depositing it. And you've got these hardy little sea creatures that live there. So a lot of what we see in the fossil record is this ocean life. Um, but you're right. So the Triassic-Jurassic extinction, 70% or 76% of marine and terrestrial species got it. And uh, yeah, so these land and sea extinctions occurred simultaneously, which is kind of one of those, you know, mass extinction is kind of a big thing that happened. And this one was globally speaking. Right. And, you know, I, I thought it was funny. We said 70, no, 76%. That last digit is suspect, and the first one might even be suspect somewhat <laughs> yeah, because yeah, of this true. incompleteness of the fossil record. Right, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, I think it's funny to put these numbers up, really, because, yeah, when you think about stuff like that. But then I just get cascading on that whole, we're going to explode in four billion years, so why bother? So I got I to gotta start caring somewhere, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pull up, pull up. Uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so we get this land and sea extinction, and uh, these really interesting little organism that turns out to be important for a lot of geologic dating, the conodont, they go away. Yeah, so conodonts, I mean, anyone that knows me knows that I have a special relationship with these little guys. And so we actually don't know what these things are. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Imagine that. We have something in geology that we don't know. <laughs> exactly. But we use it for such a big part of our of our research. And that's so what these conodents are are these tiny little jaw bones, basically. And we think they were like the jaws of these little worms with teeth, which is terrifying. <laughs> Just just a little bone that's left over looks pretty scary. Oh, right. And they come in all kinds of really cool uh, varieties. So you can just search like images of con conodonts. And yeah, so some of them are terrifyingly sharp and spiky and all this stuff. And, you know, some of them are just sort of look like a jaw and, and that's it. Um, but why they're so important is because we can use them, their color specifically, um, because however they get heated through any sort of geologic process and this could be you know impact this could be burial this could be you know vault well not volcanics nearby volcanics right these conodonts are going to change color and they do so very empirically and so you can use them what we call the conodont color alteration index uh, to determine how hot your rocks were and actually this is really important when trying to solve a lot of geologic puzzles 
Yeah, and the way that the conodont coloration index was derived was taking conodonts and putting them in ovens. Right, exactly. <laughs> and shockingly, this worked. Uh, so there's a really excellent book um, about Anita Harris, who is the geologist that came up with this. Um, John McPhee writes about her, too. Um, it's pretty neat, the story. But that is a totally different thing. But they're gone <laughs> by the Jurassic. So that stinks because these things are really great um, for determining rock temperatures. Um, a lot of other things got it, too, though. The ammonoids, so those really cool curled shells that you can buy at lots of gift shops. Those things barely survived. They don't last a whole lot longer after this, so they were pretty much decimated then. And then um, lots of land things, like the large amphibians were wiped out and some other stuff. Yeah, so some of the, the bird-like ancestors, uh, some of the early what we would now consider crocodiles, those kind of things mm -hmm. did not survive this. Yep, uh, therapsids, which are all these things that we might call dinosaurs, if you don't really know better, I guess. The, the term dinosaur is very specific. Um, and yeah, many of the pterosaurs at that time, too, because bird things that flew back then, flying reptiles, not actually dinosaurs, right? Um, but what this extinction did do was it allowed dinosaurs to become the dominant life form and reigned for 150 million years. Right. So remember, this is the Triassic Jurassic. So it's at the boundary between the Triassic and the Jurassic. So we're just coming into the Jurassic period where dinosaurs are this uh, this dominant force. But what could cause a land and ocean extinction of this scale? And we think we've got some ideas on this one. Right. And so this is, all these things are no surprise. Um, but one of the biggest sort of smoking guns or smoking volcanoes, if you will, uh, was the <laughs> Central Atlantic Magmatic Province. And that was erupting at this time. But this was different than those traps that we talked about. So the Siberian traps we talked about, we're going to talk about another trap here in number five, big extinction. And this is an underwater area. Right. So this is probably related to the fact that Pangaea was pulling apart at this time. Right, and so you're really cranking up the, actually, a lot of plate tectonics really cranks up the rates during this part of the Mesozoic and going into the Cretaceous. Um, so we're starting to break up this huge supercontinent, and it kind of happens pretty fast. And so as you're doing this, you've got all these mid-ocean ridges going, and you're pumping out lots and lots and lots of well, basalt now, right? And, I mean, this volume of this flow is crazy. Two to three <laughs> million cubic kilometers. Right. So we're looking at massive amounts of CO2 coming out. In fact, this is uh, similar to the volume of the Siberian traps in the Permian-Triassic. Right, exactly. Um, and so we've got pieces... Of, and this is sort of one of those things we use to recreate these big, besides paleomagnetism, recreate these big um, supercontinents, is that we've got pieces of this basalt that's all the exact same, and they're still existence, in existence today. So in Africa, parts of Eastern Europe, North America, and South America are these chunks of this central Atlantic magmatic province. 
Um, and so, you know, we've we've had these volcanoes all are everything, like I said earlier. <laughs> um, and it's the CO2 that winds up in both the ocean and in the atmosphere that was probably blamed for this extinction. So it had to do with climate change. Um, and these volcanic events affected both the land and the ocean animals as opposed to the traps, which might have been just more land. Um, yeah, and so this one was fairly bad. But to tell you the truth, I never really I never really thought about this one very much or have studied it very much. I don't, I don't know why. Maybe because it's not super big, even though... 70% of things died. Yeah, I mean, I know that there there are definitely folks that work on this, but it's not something that has ever really crossed my path either in terms of my research. Yeah, uh, what I did find interesting, though, is that everyone basically thinks that this um, large amount of mid-ocean ridge basalt stuff is the reason. Like, there's not a whole lot of... Everyone always thinks there could be an impact, but there's not a lot of debate about the Triassic-Jurassic extinction. Right, and so if you do do look anything up about this, you'll see MORB, M-O-R-B, quite a bit, and that's mid-ocean ridge basalt. Yep, and then people call it the camp or the Central Atlantic Magmatic Province quite a bit, too. Right. Yeah, so that being said, that non-controversial one at all, let's get to one of the more controversial ones. Ah, yes, the <laughs> famous, the dinosaurs get it. Exactly. <laughs> um, so this is used to be known as the Cretaceous tertiary mass extinction, but now we don't use the word tertiary anymore when we're talking about the geologic time scale. Um, so instead of it being called the KT extinction, K being what we usually abbreviate Cretaceous for, um, it's the KPG or the Cretaceous paleogene extinction. Which is so weird because I was taught when I was an undergrad and have gone and put my, you know, finger on formation said, this is the KT boundary. And I know it's, it's such a hard thing to change. It really is. I have a piece. Um, I've got a big rock in my garden. That's a piece near the KT boundary. I can tell myself that there are glass spherules in it. I don't think that's probably true, but yeah. And I'm like, this is my KT rock. And I'm like, no, this is my KPG rock. It's just, it doesn't seem like we've been scientists long enough to have something this, you know, large and earth-shaking happen to us. But yeah, this this tertiary, the, the loss of the tertiary and the acceptance of the paleogene is very traumatic for me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so in the KPG extinction, yep. uh, I would say this is the most famous, probably just because it is the most recent other than what's happening now. Right. And this is when the dinosaurs get wiped out. There's lots of art of giant uh, <laughs> impactors coming into the earth with dinosaurs confusedly looking at this bright light. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but this was about 75% or so of species wiped out. Yeah, um, you're exactly right. The art on this is fantastic. There are, there's this one great picture where it's like a T-Rex and a Triceratops and, and like a Stegosaurus, which didn't live at the same time, but whatever. And they're all like, huh? And it looks like they'd been talking. And so I totally went and Photoshopped like some cigarettes in their hand and like a cup of coffee. <laughs> it's it's my like favorite. The, the dogs playing yes, poker. <laughs> exactly. Except there's a giant bolide burning in the background. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it is always fun to look at this art as a geologist and say, yeah, none of those things ever lived 
together <laughs> ever. Oh, I know. That one's that one's kind of painful. I mean, there's some very like realistic and scientifically accurate art as well. Um, I found a really good one that I used in class, which was all these T-Rex on their back, like, you know, dying and everything like that. Um, <laughs> Little arms straight up. Exactly. <laughs> so this one is is very contentious because there are lots of things that are potentially responsible for this. Um, and the story of Luis Alvarez and his father, Walter Alvarez, who sort of discovered Chicxulub, or the big impact crater um, that we think actually started this whole KPG extinction, is really an exceptional story. If you're interested in the history of science, the Alvarez's are really great. That They weren't geologists. Um, one was a physicist and one was a geologist. And they found this really cool layer in these rocks right at this boundary that had iridium in it. And why does There's that only even... one place to get iridium. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the only reason that matters is you only get this from basically meteorites. And this iridium layer was found not just in one place, but in a lot of different places, always at about this same time period. And in order to spew that much iridium somewhere, you had to have a big old crater. Right. And when we say big crater, we're not talking about meteor crater size. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not even <laughs> close. Which is so tiny. But then when you get there, you're like, gosh, this is really big, right? It's like a kilometer across or something. Um but Chicxulub is like 300 kilometers across. Yeah, it takes a long time on a drill ship to steam out to the center to drill it. Uh, yeah, um, we talked about some really recent and super cool um, science that was done because they just recently drilled it. Uh, 2016, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, this is this whole crater has been drilled before. It was It's an oil field, which is very frequently with these big impact craters, right? Um, and this is off the Yucatan Peninsula. If you couldn't tell from the weird spelling that this is definitely something that happened in Central America. Um, so Chicxulub is how you pronounce that word. And this impact definitely had global climatic consequences. Um, there's lots of talk that the dinosaurs were already on their way out, that their ecosystem was failing anyway, and that this was just the nail in the coffin. Some people still think that this was the thing that started their downfall. Um, it's still a... Still a bit of a question. Yeah, and so when you have an impactor like this, it's obviously going to throw lots of stuff into the air, which is going to cause consequences in terms uh, of yes. <laughs> incoming solar radiation. So you're going to be able to support much less plant life, which can support much less uh, animal life and things on up the food chain. But you right. can also have, with something this big, you know, like, worldwide volcanic consequences. So this is crazy. Um, so at the same time, and this is what people thought before Chicxulub was discovered, which I don't know the year on that, John. That wasn't very long ago, though. No, it's recent in human time, not even geologic time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so before that, people knew about this huge amount of basalt that had been erupted about this time, and we call this the Deccan Traps, so like the Siberian Traps, uh, but this is in India, and this was a massive volume of basalt, and so, like you should already know by now, these volcanoes are spewing lots of CO2, which could be potentially warming the atmosphere, and therefore 
warming the oceans, um, but also erupting a lot of ash, which could cool the planet and cause massive global cooling. Um, so these were erupting at the same time, but some people have linked the two together and said that the Chicxulub impact was so big that it actually basically <laughs> caused lava to spurt out on the other side of the world. Yeah, and you think, so this impactor, it's estimated to be about 10 or 15 kilometers. So that's six to nine miles across the rock. Yeah. <laughs> that hit. And it's hitting very, very fast. So yeah, you're you're imparting massive amounts of heat. You're vaporizing everything in the remote vicinity. Yeah. <laughs> you're um, vaporizing rock. You're creating all these overturn. And yes, you impart a lot of energy into the system. Yeah. And so potentially the... Uh, that energy traveled all the way across and created these magmatic explosions on the other side of the world. But I guess if you think about that, like that sounds really crazy to talk about Earth, but we've definitely talked about that in the term realms of planetary sciences with no sort of, you know, oh, that's a crazy hypothesis. I mean, people could say that all the time, right? Like you get this big impactor and you created all this volcanism to go with it. Yeah. So... You know, it's really not that crazy, but it's, I guess that just shows the disconnect you have sort of sometimes you're working on planetary processes and you forget that Earth is also just a planet. So you can see the Chicxulub impact structure as a gravity anomaly because of the missing material. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> From like airborne gravity. It's, it is a massive feature. And so I did a little bit of lookup since we're obviously not live here uh, <laughs> the the alvarezes did their work in 1980 okay. uh, the crater was suspected from some oil exploration uh as early as 1978 okay there you go yeah so not a not a long time ago at all yeah i i like to think that's not a long time ago since that's about my vintage but moving on um yep <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is really crazy. So we've got this massive impactor. Think of a town 10 miles away from you and the rock is that big. Ridiculous. And so we've alluded to this a bunch is that that vaporized stuff. So the actual place that it hit was like a shallow carbonate shelf. So you had water, you had carbonate rocks. And I mean, that size, you vaporized rock. Like rock that was already there, not just the the gushy stuff on the seafloor. And you put that vaporized rock high into the stratosphere. And that's really hard to do. That's a lot of energy. So not only do you have all this water vapor and all the poor little fishies <laughs> that also got vaporized, but you actually vaporize an entrained rock 10 kilometers plus in the atmosphere. Yeah, and it's carbonate. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So what'd you just do? You just injected a ton more CO2 into the system. Well, way more than a ton. Hundreds of tons. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so it sticks up there because it's in the stratosphere. Yeah. So you've got that. You've got these Deccan traps, which are also pumping out lots of CO2 at the same time. Um, if the dinosaurs weren't on the way out, they're absolutely on the way out now. Um, there's another thing that affects the atmosphere that's associated with meteorite impacts that when I did a lot of Chicxulub research, not for this show, 
for a class ages ago, uh, something that I found really cool is that these meteorite impacts often cause forest fires, which we know by, by um, very recent impacts, too. Yeah, in fact, I think we should talk about the Tuscunga event at some point, but on a, right. a separate show. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's the one I was thinking of. So um, a lot of the northern Russian landscape was set afire by a bunch of meteorites that hit. Um, but these forest fires, besides the obvious of killing the things that live right there in the forest, they also affect the atmosphere by injecting soot really high and for a long way. And there was widespread forest fires because of the size of this impactor and the forest fires were of the size that they made a geological mark exactly um yeah so like we know this from you know processes that happen today we've seen tiny tiny meteorites make big forest fires and so you uniformitarianism this probably happened in the past but that soot is actually in the rock record at the kpg boundary or very close after uh, the KPG boundary. Um, so yeah, that's really going to have a big effect in terms of this global cooling is probably what started to kill things and started to kill the plants too. Yeah. And like I said, that, that propagates up the food chain. It, yes. <laughs> right. I've got some food chain things to talk about when we talk about the number six potential extinction. Um, but yeah, uh, the Cretaceous itself before this was happening was actually really warm. Um, there are alligator fossils in Greenland at this time, um, and it was kind of what we call an equable climate. It was really warm all over the place. There wasn't a lot of temperature variation throughout the whole globe, which is an interesting thing. We actually have a hard time sort of describing why this would happen. Um, there wasn't a lot of temperature variation in the ocean. It was just a rather pleasant, stagnant type time. And so to cool off this stuff, that was really going to kill things even worse. Because all these things across the entire globe were pretty well acclimated to fairly warm temperatures. Yes, and so one of the... I've talked in the past about the, the fiction series the chronicles of saint mary's with the historians that go back in time and oh, investigate mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. uh, one of the places they go is to the cretaceous and the description of the cretaceous is actually something that i think is relatively geologically sound based on what we know and hearing an author give that interpretation as somebody's smelling it walking in it and that kind of thing was really interesting oh that's awesome that's really cool um Oh, maybe I'll maybe I'll find some passages from that for my uh, for my class. Um, but okay, writing that down and moving on. Um. <laughs> yep, no no spoilers. But uh... yep, yep. <laughs> Please. Um... So the the important thing about all of this was it started paving the way for mammals. Exactly. Um, so we decimated the non-avian dinosaur population, which I love. This is a thing now because birds are dinosaurs. So. Now we say non-avian dinosaurs, which I love. Um, and that's a new scientific thing, too. Everyone's on board with this. Birds are absolute dinosaurs. Uh, as well as all the marine plesiosaurs and mosasaurs, those terrifying things that floated around and killed everything. And now the ammonites get it for good. But luckily, our furry little mouse-like ancestor way, way down in our family tree <laughs> made it. So, yay. Yeah, so 
Then we have to uh, skip forward all the way to now to talk about the next extinction, extinction number six. Right. Um, well, there are uh, there are quite a few names for it, some of them not very nice to humans. Um, <laughs> so maybe it isn't a good thing that our little mouse ancestor made it out of the KPG extinction. <laughs> because so there's five mass extinctions in history, and there is a lot of scientific debate about whether we're in the number six the Holocene or the Anthropocene mass extinction right now. We'll talk about that word here in a minute. Um, and so there's a lot of debate on this. Are we killing things? What's going on? Yeah, and so you could think of a sort of a background extinction rate as being one to five species a year. But right. that's not what's happening now. No, no. We said challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> so the estimates of what we're actually losing today are 1,000 to 10,000 a year or 12 species a day. And, you know, these rates are all over the scientific literature, and actually they're kind of all over the place too. Yeah, but if you take those numbers, you know, we do our favorite order of magnitude analysis here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, what's one order of magnitude between friends? Right. <laughs> so if we take that and go out over tens of millions of years, like some of these extinctions occurred over, that's very significant. I mean, because not all extinctions are, well, I would say no extinction is massive event, immediate 70% of life gone. Right. I mean, the, the KPG extinction was probably the closest you would get to that, but that was not even close to, you know, five years or something like that, right? That one was... I mean, there was probably a lot of stuff dead in hundreds of years, and so that one was fairly rapid, maybe the most rapid one that we've had until now. Um, but there was a 2004 Nature paper, which, I mean, that's a while ago, that was estimating that by mid-century, just due to climate change, 30 to 50% of species would be extinct. Yeah, so that's already pushing the mass extinction envelope right there, and that uh, is right. in 2050. <laughs> Right, exactly. Um, and so this sort of goes into this argument that we're having, we as earth scientists are having, is are we actually in a new geologic era right now? And a lot of people would argue yes, and they call it the Anthropocene, or if you're from England, the Anthropocene, which is infinitely cooler. <laughs> um, and Basically, when did man start affecting Earth enough to actually make, you know, a mark, geologically speaking? And that's sort of the beginning of the Anthropocene. Um, and so now, a lot of this extinction is basically attributed 100% to humans. And it's not just humans driving cars. It's basically started since we walked out of Africa Right. And, you know, at that time, we didn't have large concrete parking lots and parking structures and malls, but it's a pretty short jump. <laughs> right. Well, geologically speaking, yeah, geologically speaking, it really is. And um, the biggest jump was when we started um, changing habitats for our, well, changing other wildlife habitats for our own use. So mostly um, farming and then um, creating livestock caring for livestock. So that's one of the big things. Um, so not all this extinction is climate change, although obviously that's a big part of it, not the kind of climate change in terms of 
volcanoes that we were talking about before, but definitely the CO2. And so the volcanoes now are our cars and everything that's we've been spewing since the Industrial Revolution. Um, but a lot of it is just habitat loss because of humans and climate change. Uh, we did the Arctic episode with Ben Crosby way, way back when, a long time ago. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it doesn't feel like that long ago. Um, and so if you haven't listened to that one, that's a really great one to go listen to. I've linked the past show here in the show notes where he talked about looking at the Arctic through remote sensing and seeing how quickly that habitat is changing. And so obviously there aren't millions of people driving around the Arctic, right? Uh, yeah. But, um, <laughs> I mean, you tell me, you do satellite stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're affecting those ecosystems, though, by what we're doing elsewhere. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you know, as we always say, everything's connected. Right. And... <laughs> We're not only are we doing this, but I saw an interesting talk a while back, uh, talking about the methane output from livestock that we're raising to feed ourselves, and then measuring uh, fluxes to the atmosphere in terms of mega cows as a unit. <laughs> oh, it's not funny, but it is. <laughs> yeah, so it was it was a thought provoking thing that you don't often think about animal waste products being a significant flux of greenhouse gas. Right, but it is. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, and I guess I just don't really realize how much livestock we had. But So when I was looking up stuff about this, because I definitely don't work in this geologic time period, not even close, so I didn't really know a lot about the stats and the reasoning behind why we think we're in a mass extinction now. Um, but I found this really interesting article in the Atlantic that is also linked in the show notes. Um, and it's about um, a GSA meeting, well, the GSA meeting last year, actually, or two years ago. Um, and it's talking about how it's from this Smithsonian paleontologist, Doug Irwin, who says we're actually not in the sixth mass extinction, which is interesting because many scientists think we are. But this is right up your alley, John, is that he compares the dynamics of these mass extinctions to power grid failures, um, which he says kind of work in the same way. So when you have a big blackout, and he compares this to, there was a big U.S. blackout in 2003 in the Northeast, right? And he compares it to mass extinctions by saying, you know, these blackouts happen, they're kind of instantaneous, Right, and there's like a small cast, not a small, a large cascading effect that's in time is pretty quick in terms of the blackout, but it's all the stuff that happens after it, the secondary things that start to fail because of that power grid failure that actually start to affect our lives. And so in this case, it's this that food web you were talking about, um, that kind of breakdown in one seemingly tiny part of the food web or you know, mass extinctions in Earth's history, these sort of global die-offs, how they actually affect the food web because one thing dies and those dynamics are can be modeled exactly like these blackouts. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, that is a an interesting idea and way to model it. And really, we don't totally know what's happening right now. Right. right. And, and that's what was really scary, actually, about this article, is that they said, we don't know what happens in the power grid. <laughs> like, I thought, mm, cool. 
<laughs> and so that's exactly what he said. But there's a stat in here that blew my mind. And he says, wildlife accounts for only 3% of Earth's land animals. Human beings, our livestock, and our pets take up the remaining 97%. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, what? I never would have thought that. <laughs> and so he's kind of arguing that there's no way we're in this mass extinction because we kind of artificially control the things that are alive today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's true. We, You think about how many people there are, how much of the land area we control, which is about everything above water. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we control what's on it, and we have to feed and deal with waste from all of these people and all of these animals. Right, exactly. And, you know, he talks about we're comparing this to mass extinctions of the past, and he talks about how, you know, so little of the actual biome in the past is known just because of the incompleteness of the fossil record. That, you know, things go away in a blink of an eye now that we never would have known existed in the fossil record. Uh, he's talking about these cloud forests, which you hear a lot of people talk about that are, you know, in the Amazon and all this stuff. And it says that, you know, there's no cloud forests that are around in the uh, fossil record. And he said, our cloud forest won't be around in the fossil record. Um, one of the common things that people talk about, like the beginning of this sixth mass extinction, are these passenger pigeons, right? So passenger pigeons were huge, huge population in the 19th century. Now they're all gone. And he says, you know, the estimates of the amount of passenger pigeons is crazy that lived, you know, like 5 billion or something like that. Yeah. And and he said, you know, that would black out the sky. That's how many there were. And he said, but there was only like two fossilized passenger pigeons that they found. <laughs> yeah. So it's amazing how much is going to be lost and how much of in geologic time what we have is going to be just not even there. Right, exactly. Um, so it, it was very interesting, a different viewpoint, you know, from a paleontologist about this mass extinction. And he said, don't don't be confused with the fact that, you know, humans are doing an outrageous thing to the planet. But in terms of a mass extinction, you know, maybe that's not what's happening. Maybe it's not as bad as that, even though what we're doing is probably pretty bad. Because if you think 97%, that's unbelievable. So we control... I mean, an amazing amount of everything, you know, so not just on land, but he said a lot of the science that has been done on the oceans and the way we've started to treat the oceans with fishing trawlers and all this stuff, um, how we're decimating both the land and sea, actually. Yeah, and the problem with trying to compare now to past events, you know, if you think of the Earth as an experiment, well, we have a sample size of one. Right. <laughs> so knowing... Exactly what's happening without other information it's it's a vastly underconstrained problem we can look at past events and use them as analogs but there's no guarantee right that that's directly applicable to now mm -hmm. right and uh he sort of he makes that that similar argument of you know the comparisons aren't it's it's not the same thing so i thought that was really interesting because you do hear a lot of doom and gloom about what we're doing and everything and it's like you know or it's going to go on eventually is basically what he's saying so that that was very interesting i did love a quote 
This is the last one I'll read from here, but man, it was really funny. Um, because he's talking about, you know, if this was Armageddon, basically like the Permian mass extinction, right? And he says, if we're really in a mass extinction, if we're in the in-Permian mass extinction of 252 million years ago, go get a case of scotch. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, I'll leave the potential sixth mass extinction on Earth's history for that. Yeah, so that summarizes all of the horrible things that have happened to our planet that we know about. <laughs> oh, exactly. I mean, we probably should have paleontologists on here to talk about that, but eh, we covered it, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is interesting to look back and see how little of life has survived and how things get catastrophically bad, but over geologic time, recover. Exactly. Um so to bring it back around to the beginning of the episode, um, I think we should talk about how the robots are going to kill us, and that'll truly be the sixth mass extinction. <laughs> <laughs> that means it's time for Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> uh, so this isn't exactly a, a paper, but it's in the Nature articles, and I thought it was really interesting because it's not something I've talked to you a lot about, but I'd like to. And so um, this is by Amy Maxman, and she has written this article about AI researchers embrace Bitcoin technology to share medical data. So before um, you turn off the, the episode saying, oh, they're talking about blockchain, wait. <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't know any of this. That's also why I wanted to do this. I thought it was really about Bitcoin, but yeah, it's some dumb programming thing. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, that's mostly what I want to talk about. So the article is about how they're using AI with medical records. And the deal is, you know, how much of that is actually sort of infringing on our privacy, even though it's really secure with this blockchain stuff, right? Well, so that the interesting thing that I don't want to skip over is that AI, there there is good evidence that artificial intelligence or machine learning or all the other buzz names... Uh, could do a better job at detecting breast cancer than doctors do because they can miss 25% of diagnoses, no problem. Right, which is both terrifying and reassuring. I don't know how to feel about this, which is kind of why I want to talk about this. I, I don't know how to feel about this. I mean, that's Well, machine great. learning does amazing things. and Yeah, until they learn to kill us, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of self-driving car uh, work going on with this. I know uh, Alicia White on Embedded has talked some about that and a course that she's been doing. And I've played with machine learning just as a you know a toy project and was amazed at the results I was able to get from it. But the problem with using machine learning for something like looking at mammograms and diagnosing breast cancer is that you need absolutely massive training data sets. Right. Um, and that's, that's a lot of what this is, right? Um, because a lot of people feel that's an invasion and so they don't want to give that up, especially if robots are going to look at it. I mean, that's how I feel. <laughs> that's kind of creepy. Well, robots are not humans, so. Yeah, because they're going to kill us. Um, <laughs> but, but the, uh, I mean, the problem is like, you don't need hundreds or thousands. You need hundreds of thousands <gasps> right, yeah, of mammograms exactly. to look at just to train. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, what is this blockchain business? Just the way that the stuff is encrypted? Uh, I mean, not, sort of. Not encrypted, so, but the way it's written. 
So I want to separate AI and blockchain totally because oh, they're yeah, different. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, right. The, so the AI, the problem is you need all of this data, and there have been some breaches. Right. Uh, for example, in the UK, there was 1.6 million patient records that without consent were released to a company, and the company got names and sensitive data, like what STDs you had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not cool. <laughs> and so, I mean, this data exists out there, and how you protect it is one of the things, because if you could guarantee protection, then you can instantly give these hundreds of thousands of data points to the machines to learn, right? Yeah, so if there was a way that you were guaranteed mathematically that your data is anonymized and only accessible to certain things for certain amounts of time, would you do it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I would. I mean, I'd like to I'd like to advance science, but I don't want to give the robots anything to use against me, and I only say that partially joking. They wouldn't know that it's you though. I guess, if I was 100% guaranteed that. Yeah, so blockchain, the the two-minute explanation of blockchain or less, <laughs> <laughs> is, so if you think of a block containing data, it could be medical data, or in the case of Bitcoin, it is transaction details. So I send you one Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a transaction. That data is written into the data part of a block. We know the, we we can hash that block, which means we generate this unique cryptographic hash that if anything in that block changes, the hash changes. So it's sort of like a fingerprint, it's unique. Okay. Uh, Hashes are the basis of like the GitHub version control system and cryptography. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So you have this unique fingerprint and if somebody messes with it, you're gonna know it. So not only does the block have its fingerprint, it knows the fingerprint of the previous block as well. Okay, so it's all connected, basically. That's the chain part, it's ah. blockchain. And ah. so if somebody goes back and tampers with a block, every block after that becomes invalid. Okay. And yeah, okay, you're saying, why don't they just rehash all of those blocks that come after it. There's something uh, that's required called proof of work. And Mm -hmm. so to create the hash for a transaction, let's say it takes 10 minutes and the blockchain is tens of thousands of blocks long and you mess with some block back in the middle, it (laughs) takes a massive amount of wall clock time and computing resource to recompute all of those hashes. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Then (laughs) it's also distributed. So everybody that's part of the the network has a complete copy of the blockchain. Oh. And if somebody, if there's a new block that's sent out to, so I send you uh, a block and that gets sent out to the whole network that we had this transaction, there has to be consensus. So over 50% of the network has to say, yes, that's a valid block. Gotcha. So to mess with it, you would have to mess with the block recompute the hashes of every subsequent block and then hack in and take over over 50% of the network to get That's consensus. Actually, 
That's pretty impressive then. So when people talk about mining Bitcoin, they're not talking about like making new Bitcoin out of nothing. They're talking about stealing these blocks from people, right? Uh, no, no. So you can compute no? oh. hashes. Uh, yes. Oh, okay. Oh, so it's not that good. <laughs> uh, you're turning power into math. Ah, uh, okay. Gotcha. And lots of heat. Yeah. Uh, but But so the idea with this medical blockchain is that records are linked. They're this big series of blocks. And so that for somebody to go in and alter, tamper with, or link, say, personal information into these would require alteration of the entire blockchain and network. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So probably fairly secure. And I mean, I like the idea of, you know, more data making things better, obviously. I mean, who wouldn't want to, you know, help stop more breast cancer? But if you're saying, you know, here's all your very personal data about your breast cancer, but we're going to secure it through this way if you'll share it so we can help other women, right? I mean... Yeah, and there's even some talk of we'll pay you to let us put your data into a block. Probably in Bitcoin, though. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you can convert it. It it is a digital token, but you can convert it to real money for Ah. some of these, like the the 23andMe genetics and that kind of thing. Right, right. Um, So I thought this was really interesting because I'm sort of on the fence about machine learning because, you know, I I listened to that stephen hawking thing where he says ai is going to take over i mean you read elon musk's book does he he talks about this stuff too right oh yes uh and you say that you don't know how you feel about machine learning and having personally identifiable information linked to it there is an alarming amount of your pii linked (sighs) into machine learning all over the internet already i know see this is why i hate facebook well, it's not only Facebook. So Amazon, Netflix, Google. Wait, wait, wait. No. Okay. So I've been very anti-Facebook and Amazon, but Netflix? <laughs> well, how do you think recommendations come shush, about? It's machine shush. learning. No, man. <laughs> yeah. Don't do, don't do this to me. I mean, uh, pretty much any website that shows, you know, recommendations or yeah, anything. Yeah. And, th- and there's also a profile that is linked to, not exact. this is where... My knowledge of how the the ad bidding breaks down a little bit, but there's a profile. It doesn't say Shannon Doolin, but it has something that might as well say Shannon Doolin. They don't know yeah. your name, but they have an identifier. And when you go to a website and you see ads that are related to things that you've looked at, yeah, <laughs> it's because in the time that that page loaded, in tens of milliseconds, maybe a hundred milliseconds, a bidding war between people that had products that the machines thought you might want took place and the highest bidder won the right to show that ad to you. <gasps> I didn't realize that. Wow, that's intense. <laughs> yeah, so it's I mean, machine learning. It's not, oh, the machines are coming. The machines are here. It's making sure that we <laughs> we are careful that we don't worsen uh, people's lives with them. <laughs> that we have a big automatic powered deadening switch that actually works right (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i mean using machine learning you can solve a lot of problems uh there so airline scheduling is a good example Mm -hmm. yeah of something that's very hard to find the optimal airline route it is a problem that is explosively hard Uh, i won't go into all the computer science terminology for what that means (laughs) but uh it's a problem that we could never find the perfect solution to 
mm-hmm. and there's no analytic solution to it. But with machine learning in a relatively short amount of time and modest computer resources, we can get to a solution that is close to optimal. Uh, or the arrangement of nuclear fuel rods in reactors, the modeling of that is very computationally intensive and complex, and we couldn't solve it analytically in a realistic amount of time. So we Uh use machine learning to make the best fuel arrangement that we can. Also something that you want to happen. So, yeah. Mm. Okay. That makes sense. Unless they rearranged it, you know, to cause our eventual downfall through nuclear winter. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It's going to take me a long time to get over this. Okay. (laughs) Well, and then there's, you know, so... Uh, evolutionary genetic algorithms, sort of another branch of this, ones that try to optimize on multiple parameters or multi-objective, as we would say. And so you don't just get a solution, you get a, uh, a front of possible solutions. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, you have to make these trade-offs. It's a very fascinating field. I am grossly outdated in my machine learning knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say I am mid-90s probably. Wow. Yikes. Uh, just because it has exploded so much recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the perceptron and basic artificial neural networks and some of the more fancy evolutionary strategies uh, like covariance matrix adaptation are about as far as I ever got. Well, you know, it gives me good deals on hiking boots, so I can't really complain about a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I thought this was an excellent fun paper because it brings up an interesting uh, societal question and a potential solution to it. Yeah, yeah, it is very, uh, that's what I, yeah, that's exactly why I wanted to talk about it. So great. And now I know more about blockchains than I wanted to, but, you know, it's all good for me. Yes, and now it's time for a startup. That's what all the startups are doing these days. Sweet. (laughs) We'll just call it synergistic blockchains and (laughs) totally get funded. (laughs) Absolutely. So if you have your next big startup idea for a blockchain company or your idea for GeoCoin, uh, we would love to hear it. Shannon, how can they get a hold of the show? Uh, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Thanks for all your comments and suggestions. Please keep them coming, especially the fun papers. We're running low. Um, <laughs> you can find us on Slack. We're in the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And we're on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Uh, together, we are at Don't Panic Geo. And again, thank you for our Patreon supporters. We do have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash don't panic geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 